Uh, yeah, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, specifically, I'm VCC's student ministry pastor, uh, which means I have the profound honor of following Jesus with you. Um, yeah, it's great. Everyone, everyone needs a hype crew. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, uh, I instructed them to bring air horns or rotten fruit. Um, and so whichever, whichever you guys brought, I'm ready for it. Um, well, very early in uh, COVID, I was given a precious gift. Um, a gift so precious that it would occupy my time, my focus, and my imagination. And it took what was otherwise a listless, ambiguous season, and it just imbued it with meaning and purpose and beauty. I was given an annual subscription to the Masterclass website. Um, thanks, thanks to one of Jill's sisters, one of my wife's sisters, I got this annual subscription. And if you don't know what a masterclass is, um, the basic concept is that someone who is considered a famous master of a craft publishes an online course where you learn that craft directly from them. So you've probably seen like the eerily like geared to you ads on the internet and on social media. It says stuff like learn photography from Annie Leibovitz or learn filmmaking from James Cameron. Uh, and I say this was a precious gift to me because I have what some people would call a problem when it comes to hobbies. Uh, and, and they are right. I have absolutely zero self-control when it comes to like, acquiring a new hobby and then spending too much money buying everything for it. And then that thing becomes my new thing. Um, and so Masterclass was basically Disneyland to me. Um, in COVID, I, I watched Aaron Franklin teach Central Texas barbecue. I watched Dave Negroni teach poker. I watched like 12 hours of Gordon Ramsay scream profanities at a fish while he filleted it. And it was great. It was so good. I watched Ron Finley teach gardening. Uh, I didn't even have a garden at the point. Didn't have a backyard at the point. But I'll use it at some point when I decide gardening's good. Uh, and and, my, and my, my wife, my poor wife, would walk into the room and be like, hey, do you want to watch anything else? Like literally like The Office, Parks and Rec, I don't know, a documentary. And I go, no, nah, babe, sorry. I, I got to learn from Chris Hadfield on how to command the International Space Station. Because uh, that's going to matter in my life as a pastor on Earth. Um, anyway, but it's funny. After I watched enough of these master classes, what some would call an excessive content, um, you know what I noticed? They're all kind of doing the same thing. Even though each masterclass was wildly different in terms of what was being taught, uh, each master instructor shared the same perspective on what must be focused on in order to truly grow in competence and confidence when it comes to a skill. So rather than focusing on the flashiest or the fanciest techniques of their craft, Every single professor, every single instructor, they all focused on the fundamentals, every one of them. Why? Because to grow in confidence and competence at a craft, you must focus on the fundamentals before you think about any of the flashy details. People who are considered to be masters at their craft are not considered to be masters because they have accumulated a bunch of really niche flashy techniques. People who are considered to have mastered their craft are considered that way because they have relentlessly practiced the fundamentals and they continue to relentlessly practice them until they become like second nature to them. Until they can take the fundamentals and apply it to different techniques. Steph Curry's masterclass, which did nothing to improve my athleticism, by the way, 
he doesn't spend any time on fancy footwork or three-pointers. He spends, like, all of his time teaching the humble free throw. Chris Hadfield, an actual rocket scientist who commanded the space station, you know, he talks about a few rocket things. Um, he refers to the engine as the place where the hot stuff comes out, which I thought was a little demeaning. I could handle a little bit more. But you know what he really focuses on? Leadership. That's his thing. Gordon Ramsay and Thomas Keller, two of the most decorated celebrity chefs. Between the two of them, they hold 23 Michelin stars. They both spent about half of their entire master classes focused on the humble egg. Like they just teach you how to make an omelet. And Gordon Ramsay goes on to share that when a new prospective head chef comes to work at one of his restaurants and they want to give that chef a tryout, they don't have that chef cook the fanciest thing he can. What do you think they have that chef cook? An omelet. Yeah, they have the, usually a French omelet. They have the chef cook an egg because it reveals the fundamentals that you know. Thriving at a craft requires relentless focus on fundamentals. So let me ask you, what is most fundamental when it comes to following Jesus? Or rather, let's put this question in better words. What did Jesus think was most fundamental when it came to following after him? What's that core, gotta have it, fundamental? Today we're starting a new series called Apprenticeship Masterclass. Uh, and we named it that because rather than the life of Jesus simply being a collection of good moral teachings, the life of Jesus is kind of like a masterclass. He's teaching you his craft. He's teaching you how to be human, how to flourish as a God-imaged human being. The ways of Jesus, it, Jesus didn't primarily teach a worldview. He taught a way, a way of living, a way of partnering with where the Spirit is already at work in our lives. It's the way. You won't find a more practical man than Jesus of Nazareth. And there's a lot of things that go into this Christian life, this partnership, right? There's worship, evangelism, scripture, generosity, all of these things. At VCC, we helpfully narrow that down into seven practices. But this morning, I want to simplify the whole thing and ask, behind all of the, past, all the possible Christian activities and practices, what is the most fundamental? What is the thing that core fundamental, that if we forget it, we will fail. What is that core fundamental we must focus on to become like Jesus? Thankfully for us, the fundamentals of Jesus aren't hidden away. Jesus did not kind of shroud them in mystery. Rather, he relentlessly pointed out what the core fundamental of following him was. And so this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, open to John 15. And all you need to know is what we are about to read are some of the last words that Jesus ever says to his disciples before he is crucified. This is one of Jesus' last chances, chances to communicate, to give final commands, final words of wisdom. And here's what he says. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. There it is. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you 
that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, at the time that Jesus actually says this to the the disciples, they've been with him for three years. Imagine all that they would have heard from Jesus in those three years. All of the teachings and all of the sermons and all of the healings and miracles they would have been present for. All of the late night heart-to-hearts that you know they had. Imagine how many conversations they must have had with Jesus between the moments we see in the Gospels. After all of it, after three years of hearing from Jesus, Jesus says this. This is my commandment. This right here. This thing, singular, is my commandment. The Greek word behind this, do you know what it means? It means this, right? This thing, this singular thing is the commandment. If you focus on one thing, it's this. This is the fundamental. Love for others is the fundamental of apprenticeship to Jesus. It's the fundamental. It's the core practice And it almost feels overstated because we're like, well, there's other things too. Yeah, they all flow from love. And if they don't, they're just showmanship. Jesus simply says, love one another. To put it plainly, this is the core fundamental of following Jesus. The way of Jesus does not simply include loving others. The way of Jesus is loving others. Love is not a feature of the Jesus life. The Jesus life is love. It's not like we live a Christian life and like we're doing really good things and we're like, yeah, I I need to work on being more loving to other people. I'm like, that's not Christianity. (laughs) That's something different. The Jesus life does not include love. It is love full stop. It's not a feature of following Jesus. It is the way we follow Jesus and it is the way we are conformed to his image. You can think about it this way. Every single thing that Jesus ever commanded is simply taking love and putting it in context in different ways. Jesus doesn't teach anything that's not love. He exclusively teaches love for God and love for others. That's his whole thing. We can get so many things right in the Christian life. Worship, prayer, evangelism. But if we get love wrong, then we are wrong. It doesn't matter what we get right if we get love wrong. If we get love wrong, we are wrong. Paul famously put it this way in 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. You notice that all those things that Paul mentions are behaviors that we typically associate with Christian elites? (laughs) Like the strongest Christian you can think of, like the A-list, platinum-level, card-carrying follower of Jesus, those are kind of the things that you want them to do, right? Right? When you think about yourself being a successful Christian, you're like, yeah, I want faith to move mountains. Sounds great. Sign me up. Uh, To know all knowledge, to have all theology. But Paul says you're bankrupt without love. All those things are good things if you have love as your fundamental. 
Otherwise, they become distractions. We start to rationalize love, and we cease to follow Jesus. It goes something like this. We go, man, I, I have spent my life digging into theology. I've learned Greek. I've learned Hebrew. I can read scripture like no one else I know. I can defend my faith with blistering accuracy. I always have an answer for what I believe. That's good. How's your love? Or we say, I play on the church band. I lead a calm group. I have a prayer group. I consistently tithe. That's wonderful. Thank you. How's your love? Or I kicked that old addiction. The old dumb and destructive things I used to do before I followed Jesus, they're gone now. Genuinely, praise God. But how is your love doing? How is your love? Those things are great, but they're not the fundamental. They're not love. Friends, I think we need to hear this. It is so easy to fixate on the outwardly impressive activities in Christianity, all the while forsaking the fundamental of love for others. Why? Because everything in the Christian life is easier than love. (laughs) Everything is easier. Learning Greek and Hebrew is easier than loving other people. It's easier. But Jesus challenges us to the hard way, the good way, the right way of allowing selfless, sacrificial love to transform ourselves. Often when we find that we are neglecting love and instead we are focusing on other practices, it's because we see those things in other people and we envy them. We allow our own imposter syndrome to say, well, that Christian seems that they have it all together over there. I'm going to try to be like them. The only way to Christ-likeness is love for others. It's the only way. It's the core fundamental. But what does that actually look like? What does it actually look like? Because we can't just come up with it ourselves. We can't just assume that the way we are living is loving. I'll, I'll tell you right now, any version of love that requires no change from you or no cost from you is a, is, is, a, is a bill of goods. Love that does not require change or cost or sacrifice from you is not love. It's likely you just rationalizing your life as it exists as loving so you don't have to change. Jesus shows us what it's like. Verse 12, he says this. It'd be easier if I found my place. There it is. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no greater example than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus says, do love the way I do it, and how do I do it? I lay my life down for my friends. And I'll be honest, when I first read this and I was thinking of like how to make it practical, I walked away and I'm like, okay, I guess I just got to wait for an opportunity to give my life for a friend. I guess I just got to wait till like a friend is like crossing the street and a car is coming and push them out of the way and be like, I did it. Um, Jesus is referring literally to him giving his life for us. He is pointing forward to the cross. He is bringing the focus onto his coming sacrifice. But he's also talking about his present life. Jesus did not simply die for us. He also lived for us. And there's a little clever play on words that Jesus uses here that becomes really clear in the Greek. So if you read this text in Greek, what you find is that phrase, lay down your life, it's it's built on the Greek verb tethemi, which is a really fun, cute word to say, tethemi. It's in the uh, verse twice, or it's in the scriptures twice. Later in what Jesus says, he says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. That word appointed is the same word tethemi. They make different ideas, don't they? But tethemi is a pretty big word. What essentially it means is this. 
to take something and to position it intentionally for a purpose. That's what that means. Tefemi means to take something and to position it intentionally for a specific purpose. And so when Jesus says, I have appointed you, he's saying, I have taken you and I have positioned you for a purpose. What Jesus is saying is this. Here's the greatest example of love. To take your life and to position it as a place of love for others. To take your life and in the most practical terms imaginable, position it as love for others. Let me ask you this morning. For what purpose is your life positioned? When you think about your life and the purpose that drives it, what is that purpose? might be more helpful not to ask you what you think it is. What does your schedule say it is? If someone else were to look at your life, the way you live your life, the schedule you keep, the things you give your time and your energy and your money and your attention to, if a perfect outsider were to audit your life, what would they say your core fundamentally driving purpose is? That's an uncomfortable question. Jesus is saying this, love Christ-shaped love is to take your life and to position it for the purpose of love for others. That is the fundamental activity of following Jesus. Not simply love, but practical, life-positioning love. Jesus did not merely die for us. He lived for us as well. He gave his life as an example. Think about how Jesus positioned his life for others. He always had time for the disciples, even when they just riddled him with the dumbest questions. (laughs) He always had time. He positioned his very life, his schedule as love for other people, and we are called to do the same. And so what I want to do to start to land the plane, I want to give three just blisteringly practical ways we can position our lives for love. Three just rigorously practical ways And when I mean practical, I mean these are narrow ways. And they're also contextual to where we live. Because positioning our life for love looks specific in the Tri-Valley, doesn't it? Thing number one. You want to position your life as a place for love for others? Slow down. Slow down and be present. Uh, Here at VCC, we, we use the term unhurried presence. Slow down and be present. If you struggle, if if you realize that you struggle to love other people, the root cause is not likely that you are a mean person. The root cause is likely that you are a busy person. The number one obstacle to love in your life is likely not that you're a bad, cruel, awful, evil person, I hope. It's that you're busy. It's that your schedule's full. When your schedule's full, your brain's full. You see, we live in an area where a frenetic pace of life is expected of you. There's a temptation to it. In high school ministry, we've been talking about how it's like a false god we worship. There is this pace of life that is nonstop. And the Tri-Valley, when we see someone who is burned out, exhausted, not sleeping very much, and working like 12 hours a day, we don't view that person as unhealthy. We view them as important. We view them as successful. We go, wow. They're so tired and burned out. Don't even have time for their kids. Man, they must be doing something pretty important. That affects us. (laughs) 
We, we, we live in this, in this cultural kind of moment in the Tri-Valley where a busy, nonstop pace of life is basically expected of us, and you can't love in a hurry. You can't do it. You cannot love in a hurry. If you want to position your life as a place of love for others, you're going to need to slow down. You're going to need to look at your schedule and say, is my schedule cultivating love for others in my life? Ask that of yourself. Your schedule as it exists right now, with what you're about to do tomorrow morning, does it cultivate love for others? Or does it make it much harder? And not all of us have full control over every aspect of our schedules. I understand that. There's life stage and everything else that goes into it. There's kids. I get it. But with what agency you have of your life and in your schedule, have you cultivated it into a place where love for others naturally grows? Do you slow down? Think about Jesus. Jesus was a busy dude. Can I call Jesus a dude in the sanctuary? No. Jesus was a busy man. (laughs) You're not busier than Jesus Christ, if you needed to hear that this morning. But he never seemed in a hurry, did he? He always had time for the disciples, always. Right after he preached his biggest sermons, the next scene is him fielding Peter's dumb questions. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) How, like, antithetical to the way we live our lives. Slow down. Be present. Second thing. Ask often, how do others experience me? It's a risky question. Make sure you have some ego armor on before you ask it. If you're really brave, ask someone directly, (laughs) how do you experience me? If you're really, really brave, ask your spouse. Don't don't come for me later. You've been warned. (laughs) Ask often, how do you experience me? Not how do you intend others to experience you. Not, definitely not, how do you think others should experience you. But regardless of your intentions, how do others actually experience your presence? In psychology, there is a concept referred to as your emotional field. Um, This comes from the the world of family systems theory, um, Bowen's theory, if if you're familiar with it. And the idea is that your own personal emotional state affects the emotional states of other people. Have you ever been around a truly cynical and negative and frustrated person and walked away and found that you were more cynical and frustrated and negative? That's an emotional field. Let me ask you. What is your emotional field on on others? When you come home after a long day, what do you imbue your home emotional field with? When you walk in that door, does your house become more joyful? Does it become more patient? Does it become more present? Does it become slower? Or do you bring your anxiety with you? Does your house become more stressed out? When you get home, these are hard questions, by the way. I'm not comfortable either right now. We're in this thing together. When you walk in that door at the end of the day, do you imbue your house with a sense of I am deeply present to my family and to others or my friends or whoever? Or do you numb out and distract yourself? What do you imbue others with, with your emotional field? Not with your families, but with your friends, with your coworkers, with your calm group. What is your emotional field like? And to create a healthy emotional field where others are actually blessed by your emotional field, the only way to that is an authentic, cultivated life with Jesus. It's the only way. Scripture, meditation, slow down, be with Jesus. Allow him to transform you. That is your ministry to others. Not so much what you say, but the ministry of your natural presence. 
How do you cultivate a presence of joy and non-anxious presence in your life? Practical thing number three. We talked about this in Anchored this week. Add value and depth to relationships. Because of the pace we live at, because of the speed we live at in the Tri-Valley, our relationships default to shallow. You ever notice that? That a relationship, if you don't touch it, gets shallow. That happens because of the, the rate we live at. We live in a world of shallow relationships. One of the most intentionally and practically loving things you can do is to bring value and depth to the relationships that you're in. Think of the middle of that John 15 text we read. How does Jesus refer to his disciples? Friends. He says, I I don't consider you servants. I don't consider you slaves. I consider you friends. Why? Because servants don't know what their master is doing, but I have made everything the Father has told me, I've made it known to you. I have shared myself with you. I've shared my life with you. I've been vulnerable. I've been authentic. I've been my true self with you, and I've brought out the true self in you as well. Add value and depth to your relationships. Elevate the place of others in your life. I know we all have different kinds of relationships in our lives, and that's okay. But with the ones that are just shallow and don't need to be, elevate that relationship. Bring value and depth to it. What relationships in your life right now are existing at a shallow level and you are being called to bring value and depth to ask the deeper questions? A nice little tip, when you ask someone how they are, ask it two more times. An honest answer is usually hidden behind two shallow ones. When someone you're talking to finishes a thought in a conversation, wait three or four seconds before you respond. Like nine times out of ten, they'll realize that you're actually listening to them, you're actually present, you've given them space to be known, and they will continue to talk at a now deeper level. Create space in your relationships, in your conversations, for others to be truly known and for them to truly know you. Don't settle for shallow relationships. Don't leave friends' texts unanswered for like three days. Criminal at this, by the way. Still in this together. Bring value and depth to your relationships. It's one of those practical ways you can position your life as a place of love for others. I'll end with this quote from Robert Mulholland. He says this. A good litmus test of your spiritual growth is simply examining the nature and quality of your relationships with others. If you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. I encourage you today, when you get out of here, if you have a family, sit down with your family and have that conversation. What is our family schedule cultivating? What kind of relationships are we producing with the rate we're living at? Are we positioning our lives for love? If you live alone, I don't know, have a good glass of wine and do the thing with yourself. If you're in a group, if you're with friends, go grab lunch with them. Ask, how can we cultivate our lives as practical, rigorously practical places of love for other people? What do our relationships say about the way we're following Jesus? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your presence. And I thank you that you are not a God who loves us from far off. As Jesus, you are not a master who loves us from far away. You brought us close, not as your servants, but as your friends. You added value and depth to our relationships with you. 
Help us to intentionally position our lives as places of love for other people. Help us to pick up the mantle of the kind of love you showed others and help us to carry that in our own lives and extend it towards others and empower one another to do the same thing. Teach us to love the way you did and you do. In your name, amen.